Welcome to World of Gas, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Packy McCormick. Packy is the writer of Not Boring, a Web3 and startup newsletter which has over 150,000 subscribers. He's also an investor at Not Boring Capital, and I'm a big fan of his newsletter. Packy, welcome to World of Das. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm excited. All right. Now, kind of the big recurring theme of your work at Not Boring is that you're a committed optimist. And as we're recording this in October 2022, what do you think optimism is in the tech landscape? Yeah, that's no, a really good question. And I think probably there's confusion on definitions. Like when people think optimism, they think dumb optimism or blind optimism, or just like you think that things are just automatically going to go well. And that's not the definition that we're using. We're kind of using the definition that knowledge is power and we're kind of continually acquiring knowledge and all problems can be solved given enough time and energy and resources and focus. And I think one of the reasons that I've kind of doubled down on focusing on optimism is that I think it's a mindset that is almost self-perpetuating where if more people are optimistic and think problems can be solved, then more work can go into solving those problems. So if you look at things right now, obviously there's a war happening, a recession either here or on the horizon. Everyone's portfolio is not looking as good as it was looking <laughs> last year. So like, by the traditional definition, optimism looks kind of dumb right now. But then if you look around, not to be like too just whatever the current thing is, but what's happening in AI right now is just absolutely fascinating. I think that's a ton of fun. I think it's been really interesting to see what's happened on the energy side of things when kind of the rubber hit the road and people are like, wow, actually like energy is kind of the base of everything. And so now more time and effort going into renewables, more pragmatic approaches to traditional energy sources. So I think a lot of interesting stuff happening there. I think what's happening in biotech has been absolutely fascinating. Kind of the combination of AI and biotech is really cool. So I think there's a lot on the health side coming. And on the Web3 side, maybe the worst spot to be optimistic right now, given everything that's happened. But I'm seeing a lot of genuinely fun and useful products that are coming out right now that feel like the kind of things that can only be built in a bear market or that can only emerge in a bear market. So I'm excited about what's coming there as well. Now, the average smart person you meet is generally more of a pessimist because they can see the problems and stuff. But when you think of a founder, it's kind of the join of being both smart and optimistic, which is somewhat of a rare join. Like, how do we encourage more smart people to be optimistic so that they go out and found companies, et cetera? That's the question that I'm fighting with and wrestling with every day and trying to bring into practice. And I think one, just general, more optimistic storytelling. When you read sci-fi, as many smart people have pointed out, like it's pretty dystopian and I don't think the world's going to be that bad. I think it removes, it transports you to the future and then removes all human agency in the interim where like people do have the opportunity to opt in to a lot of new things. And most movies about the future are also dystopian too. Exactly. And it assumes that we're not going to make choices that are in our best self-interest all the way up until the year 2200. And then we're stuck in this awful world. Whereas like if a product is great and it makes our lives better, we're going to use it. If it's not, we're not going to use it unless authoritarianism wins and we have to do whatever the government says. But I think for the most part, it's overly dystopian. So one is just storytelling. The other is facts. I mean, if like you read the news or even I think one of the things that triggered this optimism kick for me was reading Wired, which I used to read as this like very optimistic publication 
90% of the headlines on there are like pretty pessimistic or pretty like, here's what's wrong with everything going on. Yeah, in the 90s, when I started reading Wired, it was like the future. And then it got pretty pessimistic. And even in San Francisco, where I used to live, it used to be you'd run into someone and they were always about like this optimistic future. And then at some point over the last few years, it turned and they were, maybe they were talking about legitimate problems like the environment or social media and stuff, but it got very pessimistic very, very quickly. Totally. And so what we're trying to do, I mean, I'm writing this thing, the weekly dose of optimism now, it's just like five links to things that people are doing or humans have accomplished over the past week. And like the amount of progress that we're making every week is pretty unbelievable. And then you zoom out and you look at a decade ago or what the next decade is going to look like. And I think if you focus on those facts and like the actual things happening, as opposed to just saying like, the world's going to be good, like, trust me, I think that's going to be helpful as well. So I hope more people focus on that stuff. And I hope to prove that like, it can actually be good business to write about that kind of stuff. Now, how do you think like there's like the Peter Thiel, Tyler Cowling argument that the rate of progress is slowing and the rate of progress is really big, let's say at the first half of the 20th century, and then maybe starting in the 70s, it started slowing dramatically. Like, how do you think about that? So I read this book, Where's My Flying Car by Jay Storrs Hall. And he talks about a lot of this. And the premise of the book is actually sci-fi used to be a little bit more optimistic in the 30s, 40s, 50s. People were projecting flying cars. They were projecting all of these great physical innovations that would make our lives better. And then the physical stuff just kind of stopped. He had this unbelievable chart that I linked to in one of my pieces that showed that essentially like an innovation that was predicted back then required a certain amount of energy. Above that threshold, those predictions from sci-fi just did not come true. So it was like an energy problem, essentially? It's a many, many things problem. And he talks about a bunch in the book. But I think like if you go back to the basis level, maybe it's an energy problem. So more cheap energy as opposed to saying, how do we slow innovation down? How do we slow the economy down? How do we do degrowth? I think if you throw a lot more energy at the problem, it makes a lot of those things possible. And I think now there's the potential for the combination of AI and cheaper energy and what's happening in material science, like all these things coming together where I think we're going to be at a spot where both digital and physical are going to be moving pretty quickly at the same time. And I think that'll hopefully move the progress bar back up in a way that Tyler Cowen and Peter Thiel will be happy with. There is a tension sometimes between like safety and progress. And if you go like full on on progress, you might be polluting the environment. You have all these crazy people dying. You have all these other types of things happening. And let's say that's like the 20s and 30s or something. And then on the other side, if you go like full on on safety, if you're worried about any airplane ever crashing or any building ever falling or anything ever polluting or something like that, then you could really stunt progress. Like, how do we get that tension right? Oh, man, that is a question for someone smarter and and more involved in sausage making than I am. And you're seeing it now with autonomous vehicles and full self-driving that there are car crashes every day and millions of people die in car accidents. And then one car accident happens with a self-driving car and it's the end of the world. And so would you agree we're too far on the safety side right now in society? We got to move more on the progress side or? A hundred percent. I mean, I think that's true in a lot of areas. I wrote this piece earlier this year about that kind of on even the investment and ownership side of things that in the Web3 world, like if you wanted to just give somebody ownership in a DAO, that's illegal. And I think that even on the financial side, the the SEC is very, very focused on protecting people and not as focused on figuring out how to get more people invested in the markets. Like half of the country is actually invested. And so you're not going to catch up with your labor alone as opposed to labor plus investing. And so even there, 
let alone safety and permitting and all of that. Kind of, like, I think in all aspects, we're almost in as a country, this innovators dilemma thing where some countries are going to come and, and just break some of the rules more and maybe move a little bit faster. Obviously, we have huge advantages in geography and natural resources and all of that. But it does feel like we're trying to protect a lead and trying to protect people a little more than trying to innovate on the regulatory side. Some of it's just we've been around for a while and these things pile up. Even on that side, like none of it makes sense. It's You can invest in this super complicated option that like nobody understands. It's like, you know, third derivative or something, but you can't invest in a normal equity in a startup. It doesn't make sense. Like I would never invest in these complicated options that like the average HODL person invests in or something. But investing in startups is a pretty simple thing to do. Totally. I made that mistake after I left. uh, I worked in finance for a few years in the beginning of my career. And so you couldn't really trade anything. You had to hold everything for 30 days. And so as soon as I left and that restriction was off, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm going to trade options. This is going to be so much fun. And I got my face ripped off. (laughs) And I had worked in finance. Like It is really complex. And the fact that you're able to click a button in Robinhood and you're like, I I think it's going to go up and then you can buy an option. But you can't invest in startups is wild to me. It's crazy. Yeah. All right. One thing you've said, which I give you a lot of credit for, is you said you probably would have written a very positive article about Theranos a few years ago. How do you balance this optimism and realism? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I probably will write about this at some point, but I I think that everybody has their double-edged sword. Mine is certainly optimism, where one of the approaches might be spending a lot of my time focusing on realism and trying to red team my positions and all of that. The way that I'm choosing to handle it is just to hire and work with smart people around me who actually know what they're talking about. My challenge is both the optimism and then I'm excited about such a wide range of things that I'm not an expert in that I could easily just get overexcited by any particular implementation of that thing without understanding the science or the tech behind it super deeply. For example, I hired, uh, I'm working with this guy, Elliot Hirschberg, who is working on all things tech bio and biotech for us. And he's getting his PhD in Stanford in genomics right now. And he's deep in the science and the research. And so I'll bring something to him and be like, this is really cool. Like, this seems like it could change the world. And he's like, no, that science is terrible. And so I think that's what would have happened with Theranos. I think actually now with Elliot on the team, maybe we wouldn't have invested in Theranos, but that's how I'm trying to handle it as opposed to like really trying to change myself. I'm trying to bring in people who can complement and balance me. This also, I have this kind of optimism bias. I always find myself when investing, like falling in love with the entrepreneur, just, oh my gosh, they tell the story and they've got also a great life story and I I just want to give them money. (laughs) Maybe it's not the best way to like, especially if you're investing other people's money to be an investor. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is I can only get excited by so many founders, like really, really excited by so many founders' story. And so one of the ways that I approach that is just thinking about them relative to each other and really now thinking like, all right, if I have a million dollar pot, am I going to give a 10th of it to this person or do I want to give twice as much to that other person? Instead of being like, who am I optimistic about and who am I pessimistic about? It's more like, who am I more optimistic about? I guess it's how I trick myself into making those decisions. But yeah, I mean, like all angel invests sometimes in something where I'm like, I don't see the business case here, but I love the story and I love the person, but I can't invest other people's money in this thing. So I'll, I'll just angel invest here. All right, that makes sense. What do you think, like, if you're an optimist, in some ways, you're going to get scammed more. Is there like an ideal scam rate that some should be shooting for? If you think of Walmart, they have an ideal shrinkage rate because they don't want to be like frisking everyone when they leave the store or something like this would be a terrible experience. 
So they're like, oh, okay, we'll lose, let's say one or 2% or something like that on the shrinkage rate. Do you have like an ideal scam rate do you think about? I don't think about it. I mean, I think the ideal scam rate when it's like an ethical or moral scam is 0%. And like, you really want to figure out if the person that but you're- it can't, If it's zero, then maybe you're not moving fast enough in investments. Or as you said, like maybe you would have invested in Theranos. If you put 100% of your assets into that, it's terrible. But if you put 0.5%, 1% of your assets, there's some ideal scam rate to have. I don't know. Or would you agree? Yeah, I don't know what it is, but you're right. Like I stated publicly that my diligence process, because I'm not writing feed checks, is not nearly as deep as other people and I'm moving faster and all of that. And so I'm certainly going to miss some things. And I definitely put a lot of trust in the investors that I work with who are leading a lot of these rounds to do a lot of the background checks. There's Jeffrey Morris Jr. Chapter One has said, I think he tweeted about this the other day, that like whenever he's actually done reference checks, it's talked him out of more good investments than bad investments. And so there's like a real fine balance there. I don't know what the right percent there is, but it's a tough thing to get right. And I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I just don't want to be involved in anything that's hurting people or going to damage my reputation in a real way. And so that's why I say 0%, but certainly things are going to fall through the cracks. If you think of Theranos, Rupert Murdoch famously wrote a $100 million check into Theranos and lost it all. Of course, he got the tax write-off, but lost it all. And he's worth at least 100 times that he's worth at least $10 billion. So he invested, let's say, 1% of his money. He lost the money, like, no big deal. Like, my guess is, and he probably didn't do that much due diligence, but my guess is he's invested $100 million in a bunch of other things that did extremely well over the years. Part of his advantage is he can move with speed and he can move with conviction. And so if he spent like all the time doing due diligence on Theranos, yes, he wouldn't have invested, he wouldn't have lost his money, but he probably also wouldn't have made the billions of other dollars that he's made with the other deals he's done. Totally. The losing money part, I'm, I've done a bad job if I don't lose money on at least 30, 40% of the investments that we make. It's just, if you can figure out that there's something fishy, I think if the actual risks to people are high, if things go wrong, it's worth spending a little bit more time on diligence. But yeah, I agree with you that there's going to be a bunch of investments. I'm not being weird enough if there's not a bunch of investments that just don't work because they're too early or something happens that the investment doesn't work out. Okay, let's talk about crypto. I know you're super interested in crypto, all things Web3. How big of a threat do you think are the whales to the crypto ecosystem? I haven't thought a ton about how big a threat the whales are to the ecosystem. Like If you look at most of the big really disastrous things that happened in the last run were opacity and kind of these CFI institutions. There was Luna Vitalik Buterin was on the Ezra Klein podcast talking about the fact that really there were a lot of very smart people. And I'm not one of them because I'm not spending time like digging in and saying, here's the bear case for this thing. But it's like a lot of smart people called out that Luna just economically didn't work and was going to fall apart at some point. And so there are a lot of things that I think just structurally, people got overexcited about in a bull market and didn't do the work? I'm one of them. I put some money into Luna. I just thought it sounded cool. Full disclosure, I have a dog named Luna. So when I saw this Luna thing, I'm like, I have to invest in this. It was just like a terrible idea. Luckily, I'm only investing my own money in that, not other people's money. But yeah, I lost basically 100% of my investment that I made a year ago into Luna. I thankfully didn't put any money into Luna more just because I didn't take a look at it. I was super impressed. We had one founder in the portfolio that run a company called Meow, which does treasury yields. They were getting a bunch of pressure from investors, from the people who put their money with Meow to put money in Luna because people were like, I want this risk-free 20%. 
And to these guys' credits, they're like, look, we looked at it and it just doesn't make sense. And our number one thing is principal preservation. So I do think that like the people who took the time to understand it realized that it was an issue. But all these things are issues. Like Bitcoin is a very risky asset. And if you've been fortunate enough to invest in Bitcoin at a thousand or something like that, or even lower, like you took that rise up, that all could go to zero tomorrow. So these are very, very risky assets to put money into. I, I bought Bitcoin at 100 and I sold it at 150, like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So you have the other problem of just selling too early as well in these risky assets. There's been all of this crypto enthusiasm and then there's also been these crypto scams and these other types of things. How do you, when you're looking at some crypto project, you mentioned DAOs or these NFTs or back in the day, they had these ICOs or how do you figure out like which ones to get excited about and which ones? There's a lot of like murky characters in the crypto world. I think it's really, for me, a big network thing. I'm investing with alongside a bunch of people that I know and trust. People particularly, I think, are valuable co-investors for me or people who have technical teams on staff because all of the contracts are open, code is open. So people can go in and evaluate whether this thing is real or not. And then you have to make all the other guesses about what's adoption going to look like and are people actually going to want like all of that other stuff. But I think there's even a bunch of projects that came out over the past couple of years where the code wasn't good or secure or it was a Ponzi or X, Y, or Z thing where smart people can diligence that well. I've been really lucky. I've gotten, I got obviously a bunch of concerned emails from my LPs when things started falling apart. They're like, we invested a bunch in crypto, didn't we? <laughs> and I've only had one one company decided to shut down. They gave most of the investors money back. They just couldn't find product market fit. But there haven't been any scams or anything like that. I kind of avoided DeFi just because I didn't understand it well enough. And so I was looking for things that would potentially have real utility for people. And I think one bit of optimism for the crypto space in general is that most of the companies that I invested in in 2020 and 2021, products haven't hit the market yet. I think there's this like weird bias because a lot of companies rush to market to get in on the bull rush over the past couple of years. And so a lot of the stuff that was actually in market were the ones who were like, screw it, we're just going to go to market. Product isn't perfect, but we're just getting out there. Whereas I think a lot of the things that really excite me are going to take a couple of years to really develop and get right and get out there. You mentioned DeFi, like this idea of being able to loan out my Bitcoin and getting some sort of risk-free, even if it's just a few percentage points or something like that, by loaning my Bitcoin, just like you would put it in a deposit, you'd put cash in deposit, is kind of exciting and interesting. If you're long Bitcoin anyway, you're long Ethereum anyway. But my main worry was, okay, these institutions might take my Bitcoin or go out of business or get hacked or something like that. So you might trust your Coinbase vault, but you might not trust some secondary institution. But Coinbase doesn't yet do DeFi. So how would you advise people to wade into some of those worlds? No, this is not financial advice. And I'm the wrong person to be asking about how to wade into DeFi. There is a company that we invested in called Exponential DeFi that is now putting out almost like the equivalent of credit ratings on a bunch of different DeFi protocols and ranking those protocols based on a combination of yield and their credit rating. And so it does make it a lot easier that you can also like plug in your wallet and it'll tell you what kind of risk you have in euros and be like, oh, I guess I had LuxRare tokens from when I used the <laughs> app and that was a C. But most of the other stuff that I had was an A. So I think like 
there is that extra level of thoughtfulness that you should put in. But so it's like a Moody's for crypto. Okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I don't even know if like legally we could say it's like a Moody's or even a credit rating system, but they do just look at the contract. They look at a bunch of different factors and understand like, are you likely to lose all of your principal if you do this thing? And they backtest it against Luna and it didn't score well. So that was a good proof point. But I do think part of the fun of it is not doing it through a centralized institution and actually like getting your wallet, plugging it in and participating directly in the Web3 ecosystem. So I would do something like that as opposed to a centralized institution and then run it through something exponential to make sure that you're not just making a rookie mistake and investing in something that'll lose you all your money. Now, we had Congressman Jim Himes. He was on this World of DAS podcast recently, and we talked about his proposal for a U.S. central bank digital currency, a CBDC. Like, do you think a CBDC is viable? Do you think it's a good thing? I think it's inevitable. Oh, really? Okay. I think whether that's this year, whether that's in a decade, and a U.S. one as opposed to a Swiss one or Singaporean one or something like that. I mean, I'm just a general believer that more things are coming online and, and I do my taxes every year and interact with the government and understand what a huge pain in the ass that is. And so if they can build on new infrastructure and make that stuff easier, I think that's great. Obviously, there are worries about surveillance and government being able to seize your money more easily that way. It's a, a ton of issues. I do think that it's inevitable that at some point the government's going to get on board and do that. So I wrote a long piece on Circle and USDC. And their house view is that the two kind of worlds, the central stablecoin and the decentralized stablecoin, are complementary to each other, or at least can both exist at the same time, where the CBDC would be more domestically focused. Something like USDC would be more international and borderless and permissionless and all of those things. But if you generally believe that more things are getting digital, then I think it's easy to make the leap that at some point, a paper dollar will turn into a digital currency or a digital dollar. You put out a really cool piece that I love called The Good Thing About Hard Things, where essentially make a case for investing in companies that are working on harder problems or working on spaces that don't have an established roadmap. There's a small number of well-known venture capital firms like Founders Fund, Lux Capital that have been really focused on this, but it does seem it's pretty rare for venture because it's so exploratory. Like, where do you see the next wave of these really huge, hard things being built out? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of different categories. I mean, defense, manufacturing with reshoring, space. I had the guys at Payload Space write this incredible, like 11,000 word overview, and there's just so much cool stuff happening there. Biotech, we've talked about, but I think there's a bunch of really interesting stuff happening there as well. There's something, and I haven't formulated this into like a real thought yet, but it feels like there's just so many cost curves that are coming down precipitously. I mean, energy is another category here. So many cost curves coming down precipitously to the point where things that didn't make sense before now make sense. So if you look at in space, for example, like the big thing that everybody talks about is what SpaceX has done to launch costs already and what Starship will do to launch costs. You look at the cost of sequencing the human genome and how precipitously that's declined. And you look at most of these hard startup categories and there's some cost curve like that happening. Defense is probably a little bit different where defense is more based on the fact that the DOD is starting to work with startups and willing to work around the cost plus model and do a model that's more familiar to a traditional non-defense prime company. So there are different factors in each one of these spaces, but I think a really big one is that a lot of these cost curves are just hitting a point where these businesses now make sense. Now, if energy, there are times, 
especially let's say in the middle of the summer in a place like California where the energy price goes negative because there's just way too much solar and you got to, they're basically paying people to take it off the grid. You could see a scenario where energy prices get caught by 10x or something and they're 10% of what they are today. You could even see where they're 1% of where they are today. If that happened, if energy prices get closer to zero, what innovations would that unlock? Well, I mean, I want the flying car, and that's different than the solar thing, because you're not going to power a flying car with solar. But I think it makes manufacturing cheaper. I think it makes running huge GPU farms cheaper. I think it makes like it just makes all of the physical things that we do cheaper. I'm not smart enough to know what entrepreneurs are going to do when energy isn't an input. Like to me, this is like one of the big gating factors to innovation is the cost of energy. And it doesn't seem like we're doing enough. Sometimes we put a new cool energy on, like we take another source off. To me, it's like, no, let's get every source on there to lower the cost of energy. Maybe over time, something doesn't become competitive or whatever it might be. And if it's polluting the environment, okay, let's add in some costs. If it's coal, like, okay, well, great. Now you have to pay for your pollution things too. But I don't want to take things off. Like, I want to get more and more stuff so that we get really, really cheap. Totally. More and more stuff, really, really cheap. Robots make more stuff. Like, all these things that, like, are actually good. There's this great Noah Smith article that cited a couple of papers that said that actually robots lead to higher wages. Automation leads to higher wages in factories where they're both human and robot workers. And so it's pretty clear that to get deflationary, we'll need a combination of both. More automation will be easier with energy materials, with cheaper, like, just everything physical gets cheaper and we can start innovating in the physical world again. To me, that's such a huge one. One insight that I found super interesting on that piece you wrote, the good thing about hard things, is that in a lot of category leaders that we consider very of the moment, like SaaS and the cloud, the leader is actually a much older company like Amazon, Adobe, Intuit. Like, why do these companies have so much staying power? Because in the technology world, you would think there's just a lot more destruction that would be happening. So I was a big, as an early Slack user, I was a big Slack bull. And I think I probably got saved on that long by the Salesforce acquisition. It was so interesting seeing Microsoft Teams compete. I used the product. It was an inferior product. Everybody that I talked to who used Teams didn't enjoy using the product. And it was stealing market share from Slack because it was bundled into whatever you're paying for. And I think that distribution advantage, and obviously there are specific cases in each one of them, but the distribution advantage is probably the biggest one with something like Intuit. There's regulatory capture. And so there's just a bunch of stuff that happens when you've been around for a while, you're in all of the big buyers and you're able to add new products and sell new products through those channels that I think is just really hard to compete with. They also are super acquisitive. And so things that start to pose a threat, they can easily afford to buy. So I think there's just a bunch of factors like that. But you're right. If you started 20, 30, whatever years ago, you probably wouldn't have assumed that it would be all of the same companies that would be a lot of the biggest and most valuable public SaaS companies. But that seems to be the case. Now, one company, obviously, that's extremely valuable is Microsoft. And Azure is just amazing. But you wrote this great piece on Excel. And I think if you rewind the world 20 years ago, you could see a world where like Excel would actually be the dominant platform and everything we'd be doing would somehow be interacting with Excel and using Excel. What do you think Microsoft could have done differently? Like they could have been a multi-trillion dollar company, you would think. Yeah, I mean, I think there's the obvious one, which is they were too slow to open up and get to the cloud and do all that 
yeah, Excel was very desktop focused for too long. It wasn't cloud focused. Yeah, exactly. So I think that was a big one when a lot of the other data platforms today were coming up. Excel was Excel and it did what it did. That said, I mean, I guess two different sides of this today. I just saw a poll that somebody put out on Twitter that asked people where they deal with their crypto data. So like, if they want to do more than just look at a dashboard, what do they do? And there was Tableau, Looker, Sheets, Excel, and 71% of respondents said Excel. So I think a lot of people still do use it. Excel is still the dominant. Yeah, it's still amazing. It's still the dominant one. The other piece of it is just like, I think the beauty of Excel is it knows what it does really, really well. And there's a lot of hacks that people can do and extensions that people do with it. But like that core use case of financial modeling and dumping a bunch of information into a spreadsheet and doing something with it there for someone who's not technical and doesn't know Python, like that use case is just like that focus is made Excel what it is. I think if they had under the wrong leadership, tried to rush to the cloud and then add a bunch of stuff in, I think they really could have bloated and diluted that product. And so I'm almost happy that it is what it is right now still. When I first learned how to code, Microsoft had another product at the time called Access, which was this database, which was amazing. And then at some point 20 years ago, they just shut it down. And it was a real blow to me. Like I just, it was kind of like a precursor to like an Airtable or some of these other things. And I also thought that was a big miss. Like somehow they could have been able to develop that more as well. It is interesting though. Like when I was writing about Replit, looking at just kind of the competitive landscape in the coding tool space, how much of that Microsoft owns, I mean, VS Code, particularly with the GitHub acquisition, now they're at the forefront of... Yeah, GitHub was an incredibly good acquisition. Incredibly yeah. good acquisition. There was actually in Ben Thompson's interview with Matt Friedman, Daniel Gross today, he talked about how that acquisition came about. And Matt Friedman, after getting... Or Xamarin, right? He was at Xamarin. Yeah. So after he got acquired, he went to Satya Nadella and said, hey, I think we should acquire GitHub. And like a couple of weeks later, Satya was like, all right, yeah, let's acquire GitHub. And you know, it's like Amazing. that easy. And he said that such as genius was that he just really kind of had a big vision for the company and was willing to kind of take on those bets. But it is amazing how much of the coding space Microsoft kind of like under the hood owns. One of my favorite quotes from you is the danger of being a good writer is that you convince people a good idea is a bad idea, which kind of goes to our pessimism, optimism, where these smart people can be pessimistic and they can kind of, really change the way you think about something maybe you should be optimistic about? Like, how do you either guard against that? And how do you unpack that? Yeah, or vice versa, right? Like, I mean, I think with me, the bigger risk is that I'll get overexcited about something and say a bad idea is a good idea. And not even to mislead people, but just because I think that it's a good idea. I try to express to the audience, like almost to think about the things that I get excited about as a portfolio of venture bets. We're like, not everything is going to work out, obviously. But I think that among the things that I write about, there are going to be some things that end up being really important and worth knowing about. But yeah, on the other side, how do you guard against really smart people being pessimistic and arguing that things are bad? I mean, I think first things first is just being aware that that's kind of the natural bias, trying to find other inputs. I mentioned Noah Smith already, but I've really, he's been on a heater recently. I think I've enjoyed reading him talk about a lot of these categories, listening to Patrick Collison and Tyler Cowen on the progress study stuff. Like I would just, put equally smart inputs in on the other side and just get a fluency with the issues that you care about. And you can't do it with everything, but get enough of a fluency with the issues that you care about where you can now see things that before you would have been like, oh man, that's awful. Now you kind of like know the history of the particular pieces of that debate and you can understand where each side's bias is playing in. That's been valuable to me as I've started to dive into a bunch of different topics. There are things now that I'll see and be like, 
oh, of course, that's based on this thing, which I actually don't agree with. Let me go find other data that maybe disagrees with it. I think probably a lot of it comes down to figuring out at least like what a, an updatable core belief that you have is on something. And then you can see if things agree or disagree with that. One of the things I think is really interesting going on right now is for certain businesses, we're in an inflationary time. And so for certain businesses, you're just seeing this massive inflationary spike. If you run a fast food restaurant right now, all your ingredients are going up, your rent is going up, your employee costs are going up massively. They might be going up 30, 40% over the last year or two. So you're just seeing these massive costs go up. And of course, you have to raise your prices and do a bunch of other things to stay in business to keep with the times. If you're running a tech company, it seems today everything is deflationary. Software engineering prices of average software engineer are going down because they're used to getting paid in stock from like Facebook and Netflix. And so if you're competing for those software engineers, their full salary has been going down a great deal. When you're buying other software, it's going down because you can negotiate it more for a company like SafeGraph, where I work, we're trying to buy companies. Okay, well, now that's like massively deflationary because the asset prices are going down. So how do you think about this deflationary system that's happening in today's tech landscape? I mean, I think probably tech got the most inflated in this past 10 years. Like, yeah, before the inflation hit, yeah. Yeah, fast food workers' wages didn't go up nearly as much as an engineer's wage went up. And so I think there's just kind of more room to come down there. And I think that's probably a big piece of it. Right. If you go back to 2014 or something like that, certainly we're inflated a lot since then. Even the asset prices have gone up a lot since then. Then those two things are related, right? Like if you're Facebook, you're printing money hand over fist, you're worth a trillion dollars. You can reasonably argue that any really, really, really great engineer might actually like move your stock price 0.01%, which is millions and millions of dollars. Like you can afford to make these kinds of decisions that don't make sense in this environment. I think, and this is where, I guess, being a writer and also an optimist, I can make an argument. I would make the argument this is like a really unbelievably good thing, both for those companies themselves. Right before we got on, there was this great exchange on Twitter between Postmarket and Gavin Baker talking about one of the things we're going to learn from Elon buying Twitter is how much leaner a lot of these social media and ad-based companies can be and still perform as well or better. And most tech companies are almost certainly like very bloated, like they could probably have half the number of people and maybe even be moved much faster than they were before. Because obviously, every time you add a person, it does add bureaucracy, it makes communication more difficult, etc. Totally. So I think after some painful transition period, it could be better for the companies themselves. And then just the fact that startups aren't going to have to compete with people who are making 600k all in comp a couple of years out of school on the engineering side, I think that's really great. Yeah, it's easier for startups. Yeah, so I, I think pushing people out to areas where they can make more of a direct impact and feel less comfortable, frankly, I think it's probably a really good thing for the innovation ecosystem overall. That's right. If you were an engineer, just sitting at Google could have been a very cushy job. A lot of my friends at Google, they work like 25 hours a week and they get free food and all this other stuff and they're getting paid just gobs of money and it almost like, stopped startups from happening, which maybe I guess is a good thing for Google. There, In some ways, if startups are happening, if there's more innovation, it's bad for Google. It's like a good bet for anti-innovation in a way. Maybe it was a smart thing for them to gobble up all these engineers, but I don't know if it was like good for the world. It's interesting because like one of the criticisms that is levied against Web3 and crypto generally is that it's taking all of these smart engineers who could be working on something that's great for the world. And if you look at the number of engineers in all of Web3 versus the number of engineers locked in Google, 
I don't think they publish exact engineer numbers. I think there's probably more engineers in Google than there are in all of Web3. And if one of those Web3 things can like change the way that governance happens on the internet and can give people ownership and like do the things that it's promised, then I actually think it's way better for more people to be working there or now in AI or obviously in climate, like all these places than locked inside of Google. So I'm bullish on what this means. Now, Not Boring is a Substack. It's on Substack. And a lot of the ways most people on Substack monetize is they have like paid subscriptions. So like a free tier and like a paid tier. But I think you've done something different where you have mostly a free tier and then you monetize through like sponsored content. How did you decide to do that? And how does it work with like Substack doesn't really get the benefit from you either, right? I mean, maybe it does because we're talking about it right now. So yeah, no, I think that is part of it. Like the brilliance of a model like that is that the more people who are out there writing on Substack, the more it markets itself. But they're getting no direct financial value from me, which is crazy and awesome. Like, I, Right, because you're using their servers, people are going to their website, you're using their email system and sending emails to have good delivery rates isn't cheap and a whole bunch of other things that you're getting the benefit from. All for free. And it wasn't intentional. Like I wasn't trying to get around the system. Really nothing that's happened in Not Boring's monetization or just at general history was intentional. But when I started out, the plan was 100% to hit a certain size, try to convert X percent of those people to paid subscribers. And X, the range is, I think, 2 to 10%. 10% would be amazing. 2% is probably more realistic that you can convert to paid subscribers. So it's like, maybe I get to 5,000 people and I convert 200 of them to paid subscribers and they're paying me $10 a month. So I'm making $2,000 a month. But then I'm slowing the growth of the newsletter because I'm paywalling all of my best content. So I either have to paywall the best stuff or write twice as much, which I physically can't do. It seems like most of the people who I know have newsletters, they actually put their best stuff out for free and they put their more esoteric stuff out for paid, right? Because they want to get, it does help them get more subscribers and stuff. For sure. And, And I actually think that works. So another piece of the decision for me was if you're writing very specific content for a very specific audience, then I think that really works. You might want to know what Doomberg thinks today in particular on what's going on in global macro and in energy and all of that. And that specific knowledge is worth paying for. Whereas for me, like a lot of people like Not Boring, but I don't know how many people love Not Boring enough to pay for it. Or companies, if you see something that your employee submits for Not Boring, like are they going to pay for it? Whereas Lenny Verchitsky's newsletter on product of course, a company is going to pay for that for their product manager. So I also just didn't think my conversion rate was going to be particularly high because it's more general content. And so all that combined, I just then started experimenting with a bunch of different stuff. So I started with ads when I was about six months into Not Boring. Then I had a company reach out and ask if I would do a sponsored post on them. And I was like, yeah, I have no idea what to charge you for that. I think the audience is going to absolutely hate this, but like, let's try it. And the audience didn't hate it. And like, actually, I've gotten... The posts that I write that are these like sponsored content, which sounds like such a dirty word, I get a ton of really good feedback from founders in particular because we're going behind the scenes on a lot of these like fast growing startups. Right. You did one, I think, recently on Tegas, which I thought was amazing. I like Tegas. I use their product, but I just, I didn't know the whole backstory. I didn't know about this random venture capital firm I never heard of, which got in at like four pre or something. They have this like incredible investment, which was so interesting. Santa Barbara venture, right? It was cool. Like it was a really interesting thing. And 
they paid you to write it and maybe you're more likely to write a positive story, but you write always positive stories anyway, right? So it's not like you're super critical. All of it has to fit, right? Like if my Monday essay were always, these companies are so stupid. And then Thursday, I was like, you know what? This one though, this one's pretty great. <laughs> it's all positive and there's enough demand for those. One of the interesting things that's happened in this bear market is that demand for the top of newsletter advertising has gone down with like the general branded advertising market generally. But the demand for deep dives, which are much more expensive, has stayed consistent. Just I think it's a more unique product. And how do you know what to charge? Is it just like based on the number of subscribers you have or something? Or just kind of like as the audience has grown, increased it from the arbitrary first position. And if I like start hearing feedback after an essay that like we like this, but it wasn't worth what we paid, then I can think about pulling back. But because I imagine it's a lot of work. I mean, any type of deep dive, if you're doing uh, thousands of words deep dive, was it typical you're doing like a two or 3,000 word piece or something? I'd say probably the average on a deep dive is five or 6,000. And some of them have been as much as like 11. And they get pretty deep. So I imagine it's just a ton of work. Do you have a research team or are you doing this whole thing yourself? I experimented on one essay working with like an external researcher and maybe our flow would have gotten better over time, whatever. But for me, so much of the process is starting to write and then looking up a particular thing and then thinking about a thing that I did before. And so I think a research process like wouldn't really help, particularly with most of the deep dives that I write are on startups. And so there's not a ton of good content on them out there. And so I'll actually just ask the founder in the beginning to like just throw the things that you've appeared on or the articles that you think have written about the company well or a white paper or whatever into a Google Doc. And I'll use that as a starting point for the research and then go from there. And maybe you send some emails to the founder to clarify something or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I'll interview the founders, I'll interview people on the team or customers or whoever else. The feedback always ends up being really positive on those though. And I think they work better than even like a top of newsletter thing, even for the price, just because they can do so many more things. Like they work for recruiting. Stripe, I didn't write about sponsored, but told me that like the piece that I wrote on Stripe was part of their onboarding package. And that happens in a bunch of companies. A lot of people say that it's the first time their parents understood what they actually did with their lives. And so like, <laughs> there's just like all these other things that it does other than in addition to driving traffic that I think makes it worth it. And how do you like, I kind of as a massive success in a week where I could like read all the not borings, I could read all my Matt Levine articles that come in, etc. Like it's a lot of information that's coming at you. I love like Slate Star Codex and some of these other stuff. I mean, you're more in the business of like reading, but there's an infinite number of things to read. Like, how do you, is there some sort of way of triaging what you do or? It's something that I'm still figuring out, frankly. So I got into a bad spot for a little while where I would only read about the thing that I was writing about on any given week. And so I would jump from thing to thing to thing and like only go really deep on that thing. And I think it actually made my writing worse doing that. Because you just weren't exposing your mind to other various things or history or whatever. History, good writing in a lot of cases, because you're just you're a slave to whatever people write about that particular company. So I did a couple of things. I took paternity leave when we just had our second kid and took a month off and just like read different things than I had been reading books and articles and just a bunch of stuff that was different. And when I came back, I asked people for their favorite essay that they'd read and got hundreds and hundreds of responses. I think it's like the richest set of responses I've ever gotten. And just started ticking through a lot of those like great essays that people had written. Just reading 50 of those or trying to read a couple of those a week, I think has made my writing better again or feel fresher again just by like osmosis. 
And so I'm trying to get the balance right between reading the stuff that I always want to read, like Ben Thompson's thing with Daniel Gross and Nat Friedman this morning. I'm going to read that no matter what. Reading stuff from people I'd never heard about, reading stuff on the particular topic, and then reading just like classic, really good writing. Speaking of Daniel Gross, there's like a Daniel Gross, Tyler Cowen question, which is, what do you do to practice? The musician practices scales, Steph Curry's practicing his threes or something like that. And I imagine for you, it's just reading, just going through and reading other people's stuff. It must be an incredible, like doing that for a few hours a day, every single day is part of your practice. Yeah, I need to get, if I can get to a couple hours a day of reading the really good stuff, that would be amazing. But yeah, every time I read something, I read a sentence and I'm just like, oh man, that's really good. Or just like see how a really great essay is constructed and now it surprises you in the middle or just like there's all these little things that my brain isn't very structured. Like I feel very lucky if I just absorb a bunch of stuff and then it bounces around and then something comes out that I couldn't have kind of expected and I wasn't trying to recall specifically. And so it really is just like, how do I feed my brain with as much good stuff as possible and hope some of that makes it out into my writing? Now you're writing like a million words a year. It just seems like a freaking lot of work. Do you have any productivity hacks or tips for people who struggle with those types of things of just staying on it? This is another one of those areas where I wish that I were more structured and like there's just a process that I had. Yeah, do you just like oh, from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. every single day, I just pens down, I write or... No, we have two kids, one of whom is eight weeks old and the other of whom is two years old. Oh my gosh. Okay, so that's like a whole... I don't ever... I, I went through that a while ago, yeah. <laughs> I've always been a morning person and my like most productive hours have always been 6 to 9 a.m. and that time is just fully chasing them around. So that's gone. That productivity hack is out the window. Writing and investing as a business and like a thing go really, really well together where I can write about a topic, I can meet founders in that space. Schedule-wise, they're like the antithesis of each other, right? Where like investing is you meet for half an hour or wherever the founder is able to meet and writing is you want these big chunks of time. Yeah. What kind of chunks are you talking about? I have different friends that are like, when I was coding, I would love a four-hour chunk of time. And now probably I chunk everything up to 25 minutes. How do you chunk up your time when you're writing? I chunk wherever there's spots available in the calendar, frankly. And okay, guys. So you could write at 20 minutes or you could write at three hours. If I have 20 minutes, I'll probably read something else on it and maybe take some notes. If I have at least kind of an hour, then I'll try to write. More is better. The biggest hack that I found is just getting panicked by giving myself a deadline every week. Like I have to send out on Monday. And so like Saturday, Sunday, I'm writing big chunks of time just because I'm panicked. Yeah, you have a deadline. Deadlines are really nice, actually. Yeah. Really nice. And I wish there was a way to like trick myself into thinking the deadline was a different day because <laughs> like, I just all sit in front of my computer on Wednesday and be like, I don't know, this is like probably a stupid way to say that and just really get to it in my own head. Whereas Saturday, it's like, I don't know, I'm just going to write this thing and then we'll edit it. Yeah, I got to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this is a random personal question, but how much of someone's personality do you think is tied up in their name? Like your name is Packy. Do you think you'd be like a way different person if your name was Patrick McCormick? I do. This is something that I've never been asked, but that I have thought about a bunch. So I think it's a really awesome question. <laughs> My dad's side of the family is Irish. I was born Patrick, but I had a little speech impediment when I was young and couldn't say Patrick because of the R. And so I started saying Packy, which is an Irish nickname. And it just kind of stuck. And when I went to high school, I had six kids in my 100-person class also named Patrick. And I think just like being Packy let me kind of stand out a little bit there. 
Yeah, it's kind of cool. Like, I don't know any Packies. I know tons of Patrick. So, yeah. I mean, I went to an Irish Catholic grade school. And so there was actually another Packy two years above me. But other than that, I think I've met like two other Packies in my life. I'd always said, like, if I, I'll go back to Patrick when I'm like a middle manager at a big company. And like, that's <laughs> when like I deserve to be Patrick again. If I'm like doing something weird and different, then I can be Packy. And so I do think it probably actually kind of helped push me in this direction. Not only. And also, if I say like I read Ben, or Matt, no one know I met Ben Thompson or Matt Levine. But if I told someone I was reading Packy, everyone knows it's you. I don't have to give the last name there, which I think is kind of cool. It's a nice unintentional, I think as with so many things and not boring, like this nice unintentional thing that just has kind of worked out and the whole thing. I think also if I were writing some like very dry thing, Packy probably wouldn't work as well. But the thing's called not boring. My name's weird. Like the whole thing. Yeah, it's fun. It's part of your brand in a way. It's like, oh, we're gonna have a little fun with everything. Exactly. Not take it too seriously. Packy is not like a serious name. It'd be hard for you to be a U.S. senator, I think. It's more like, okay, we're going to have fun with it. We're going to roll with it. Totally. Yeah, I'd be Patrick when I run for... <laughs> it's amazing that anybody runs for politics. Herschel Walker <laughs> deserves everything that he's getting right now. But like to know that you have all that stuff in your past and subject yourself to this stuff all coming out, for what? I don't get it at all. So I will not be running for senator. Okay, good. All right. Well, if you do run, I will vote for you. But thank you. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Without context, right? Like I think all of it without context can be bad. There's like those work hard versus work smart debates and like how much time should you work? When should you be optimizing sleep? And I think if you're 20, you should be working your ass off and not optimizing sleep. And I think if you're 35, I at least at 35, I'm not going to perform nearly as well if I don't take it easy sometimes and sleep. And I think that applies to so many different things where you're already behind if you're taking fairly generic advice. Like I don't think there, if you look at the list of most successful founders, for example, you're going to find a lot of people who are like, you know what did it was like this incredibly generic piece of advice that everybody gives. Like that was what turned me into who I am today. All right, this is great. Well, thank you, Packy McCormick, for joining us on World of Das. I follow you at Packy M on Twitter, and I definitely encourage all of our listeners to engage with you there and also to go to Not Boring, which I also subscribe to and encourage our listeners to engage with you there as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.